In the late 19th century, an evolving scientific theory claimed that human beings could be categorized and ranked by such constructs as social standing and group affiliation. Drawing on Charles Darwin's theory of biology that the fittest will survive, this science, called social Darwinism, perpetuated various myths about how societies evolved. One particularly destructive myth was that black people were inferior to white people. And therefore, there was a justification to suppress their advancement in all areas, lest the society as a whole be brought down. You were just listening to part of the documentary, The Origins of Lynching Culture in the United States. The documentary is produced by the organization Facing History and Ourselves. Their mission is to use the lessons of history to challenge teachers and their students to stand up to bigotry and hate. To learn more, visit www.facinghistory.org. In partnership with the Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission, I'm Nia Clark, and this is Black Wall Street, 1921. Lynching has a long, deep-rooted history in the United States. By definition, lynching is a form of violence, usually exacted by a mob, in order to administer justice without due process, in which the supposed offender is often tortured and executed. The phrase is derived from the name of Charles Lynch, who lived between 1736 and 1796. Lynch was a Virginia planter and justice of the peace. During the American Revolution, he is said to have led a questionable court to punish British loyalists. According to the NAACP, from 1882 to 1968, 4,743 people were lynched in the U.S. More than 72% were Black. However, it is well known that not all lynchings were ever recorded. As you're about to hear, lynching became a tactic to control Black people. Although rape was not often a primary factor in reasoning behind the lynching, rape was the third largest cause of lynchings behind homicides and all other causes. To explain further, Paula Giddings, professor of Afro-American studies at Smith College, explores the history of lynching in the documentary you just heard in the beginning of this episode, The Origins of Lynching Culture in the United States. prejudices always around color ever since you know the first Africans came to the US but they change and in the late 19th century with the advent of social Darwinism and the need to think about black people and black labor and black bodies in a particular way we begin to see this idea that blacks are actually beginning to devolve down the evolutionary scale, devolve into more primitive identities. Uh, and with primitive, of course, is lasciviousness and uh, lack of control, lack of character, uh, lack of honor, etc. And scientists actually sought to prove these things empirically. 
And from there, they begin to also think about the notion of what is happening to women. The idea around women's sexuality begins to change in this period of time as well. This sort of this need for this passionless sort of idea of white women who need to maintain their purity and the purity of the race, which is one of the fears, the bugaboos that come up around interracial relationships and this charge of rape. While there was no shortage of reasons for discrimination against black people by white in this period, the emerging myth of the threat of the rape of a white woman by a black man became a tense focal point, and the often false accusation of rape, the chief justification for lynching. One person of the period to expose this destructive myth was black journalist and anti-lynching activist Ida B. Wells. Ida Wells was an activist, a woman who was born in Holly Springs, Mississippi, in 1862. And in 1892, a very good friend of hers was actually lynched in Memphis, Tennessee, by the name of Tom Moss and two other men along uh, with him. And what she begins to understand um, is that lynching is really taking on a new kind of face, quite literally that blacks are being victimized now in, in greater numbers. And the reason that is given for uh, this rise in lynchings, which reaches a peak in 1892, is the accusation that black men are raping white women. She says it's new because there's, there's no history of this uh, in the, the numbers that people are professing. She knows that Thomas Moss certainly hasn't, and there's a whole history. There's a reason why he was lynched. He was actually competing successfully with another, uh, uh, with the white store owner. So what she does, which is really uh, makes her so interesting, I, I think, an activist, is she becomes an investigative reporter. And so when she starts talking against lynching, it's not she's just not giving an opinion. She's actually going to the sites of lynchings. She's using statistics that other people also use to disprove the idea by simply finding out instances when there was a charge of rape that often there were just consensual relationships between black men and white women. And that in and of itself just it turns the world upside down because if it's consensual, black men aren't monsters, as even now the social scientists are saying. If it's consensual, White women aren't desexualized and innocent of any kind of behavior or and in need of all this protection, which, is, which black people are being killed in the name of. So it's a notion that really involves um, all of them, and they're all often dependent on the other and defined in opposition to the other. You can't have white people if you don't have black people. Right, uh, with all the characteristics that are also defined in opposition to one another. I mean, this is one reason why you have to have lynching, that even segregation 
there's too much equality. I mean, there's just, you have to have something that really distinguishes white people from black people. And having black people be lynch victims and white people are able to be the spectators, now that's difference. Now that is a difference that is consistent. Most lynchings took place in the South, largely due to the end of the Civil War. After Blacks in America gained freedom, many people thought freed Blacks had too much freedom and needed to be controlled. Others used the lynchings of Blacks as examples to demonstrate to other Blacks what could happen to them if they did not maintain their subservient station in life. The legacy of lynching could be seen in many of the riots and incidents of mob violence targeting Blacks and Black communities throughout American history. The origins of lynching, including the demonization of Black males as sexual predators, could also be seen in the accusations lodged against a young Black man from Tulsa named Dick Rowland, which sparked the anger of a mob likely intent on lynching him, ultimately sparking the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. So, Mr. Hannibal Johnson, you have been talking about the Tulsa Race Massacre, also known as the Tulsa Race Riot, for a long time. You are an attorney, an author, a consultant, an expert in diversity and inclusion. Tell me a little bit about how all that fits together and into what we're talking about today. Well, I first became engaged in this history When I moved to Tulsa in the mid-1980s to work for a law firm, one of the things I did was a guest editorial column for the historical African-American newspaper called the Oklahoma Eagle. At one point, I was asked to do a multi-part series on the history of the Greenwood District, which is the African-American community in Tulsa. I did that, became really interested in both the entrepreneurship that was characteristic of the community early on in the 20th century, but also the devastating race riot, race massacre that occurred in 1921, the worst such incident in American history. So I do a lot of speaking, a lot of writing, consulting. My consulting, in large part, focuses in the area of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which obviously what happened in Tulsa in 1921 is a historical example of what can go wrong when we don't embrace those key precepts. Absolutely. And what was happening in Tulsa at that time was happening in other parts of the country, maybe not to that extent, but it was also preceded by a lot of racial tension at the time. Can you just explain what it was like to be an African-American person in Tulsa, a person both of means as well as somebody who maybe was not well off in the early 20th century? Contextually, it's more important to ask the question, what was it like to be an African-American person in America? during this period. So the national context is key. So in the early part of the 20th century, there are two things going on in America that are relevant to the particular history of the Tulsa Race Riot Race Massacre. One is this proliferation of these events that were described as race riots throughout the United States. The summer and fall of 1919 were referred to as Red Summer by James Weldon Johnson of the NAACP, red being a reference to the blood that flowed 
quite literally in the streets from this racial violence that occurred in places like New York City and Philadelphia, Omaha, Memphis, Elaine, Arkansas, Chicago, Longview, Texas, and on and on. There were more than two dozen so-called race riots during that one period in 1919. Now, nomenclature is really important. So the term race riot is a term of art. So when we hear that term, it's important to consider who created the term, why did they create the term, who was absent from the table when the term was given out, and what alternative terms might better describe these events. So most of these events that were called race riots were really invasions on or assaults on black communities throughout the United States. So that's something that was going on on the national landscape. The other thing that was going on during this period was lynching. Lynching is domestic terrorism. Uh, most of the victims of these lynchings were black folks. And the point of the lynching was not simply to harm or kill the target, but rather to send a message to the group to which that target belonged about their relative place in society. And again, most of the lynching victims were black. So the point of lynching is to strike fear in the hearts and minds of black people all across the country and to make sure that they understood what their place was and that they maintained their appropriate place in society. So that's a national context against which what happened in Tulsa occurred. Add to that a couple of other particularistic factors in Tulsa, the growth and burgeoning of the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan throughout the 1920s in Tulsa and in Oklahoma more generally, and the media. There was a particular newspaper here, an afternoon newspaper called the Tulsa Tribune, that published a series of inflammatory articles and editorials that really got parts of the white community up in arms. The one other thing that happened here, and you referenced it, was sort of garden variety jealousy, what I call land lust. There was the desire on the part of corporate interests and railroad interests to take the land on which the black community sat. That land abuts downtown separated by the Frisco tracks. So other people, other industrialists wanted that land. So that was sort of the corporate type of jealousy. And it was a more individualistic jealousy over the fact that you had these black people in Tulsa with nice homes and pianos and nice china and fine clothes where there were poor white people who felt their whiteness entitled them to more economic success than black folks. So all those factors taken together create quite the combustible mix. So something had to give in Tulsa, and that something actually gave on May 31st and June 1st, 1921. And the irony of the resentment and the jealousy on the part of many whites in Tulsa at the time was that the reason North Tulsa, what was also known as Black Wall Street, was a thriving community before the massacre is because Black Tulsans were largely shut out of the rest of the economy. Right. I mean, the whole point of the Greenwood District, Black Wall Street, was the insular economy. So the financial foundation of the economy of this community was predicated on segregation. It was, in that sense, a community of necessity. Black folks took an economic detour. They weren't allowed in a lot of the white establishments. So they provided goods and services within the context of their own community and the dollars circulated within the community, those who worked outside the community as domestics or day laborers or service providers in the white community 
made their wages and brought that money back down to Greenwood community and spent it, really supporting the economic foundation of the community. Let's get into exactly what happened leading up to the riot in the days prior. You are the expert. Can you please tell us what were the allegations brought against a boy named Dick Rowland when he was arrested ahead of the actual massacre itself? What happened? Where was he? And how did he end up in jail? First, I want to just emphasize that the event that people are often aware of between Dick Rowland, a 19-year-old black boy who's a dropout from Booker T. Washington High School, and Sarah Page, a 17-year-old white girl who's an elevator operator, that event is a catalytic event. So the factors that are that are the systemic institutional factors leading up to this event are the ones that I've described. Land lust, a general institutional racism, jealousy, the role of the media. Those are, those are the really causative factors related to the massacre. So Tulsa was very much like a tinderbox at this period and only needed some sort of catalyst to be tossed on those embers, those smoldering embers. The catalyst was an event between Dick Rowland, 19-year-old black Tucson boy working downtown in Tulsa on May 30th, 1921. Dick Rowland needed to use the restroom He knew, because of segregation, there was only one facility that would be available for his use. It was located on the third floor of the downtown Drexel building. He walked over to the Drexel building this day, Monday, May 30th, 1921, bound for the restroom. He went into the Drexel building, boarded an elevator. The elevators were manually operated. Sarah Page was a young white girl operating the elevator. Something happened. We don't know for certain what happened, but something caused the elevator to jerk or to lurch and Dick Rowland bumped into Sarah Page. Sarah Page then screamed. Sarah Page was distraught. The elevator landed back on the the lobby level. Dick Rowland ran from the elevator as Sarah Page screamed. A clerk from a nearby store called Renberg's, a locally owned store, came running to Sarah's assistance. She was inconsolable. That story, that incident was recorded and reported by a local newspaper called the Tulsa Tribune. It's a daily afternoon newspaper. The next day, the Tulsa Tribune published a story entitled Nab Negro for Attacking Girl in an Elevator. And the Tulsa Tribune sensationalized that incident between Dick Rowland and Sarah Page. Sarah Page, in the end, would not cooperate with prosecutors and would not serve as a witness against Dick Rowland because nothing really happened. It is the Tulsa Tribune in its publication of a story the next day that really inflamed tensions in the community because the Tulsa Tribune's version of the story was that there was an attempted rape on a respectable white girl in a downtown public space. And if you are a reader of the Tulsa Tribune and you are white and you believe that to be credible, you might, of course, be upset by the allegation. So that story generated great consternation and hostility among certain sectors of the white community. Newspapers had enormous influence in their communities in the early 20th century. 
At the time of Dick Rowland's arrest, Tulsa's two largest newspapers were the primary sources of information for the city's residents. They include the Tulsa Tribune and the Tulsa World. But these were not like some of the objective news publications we're used to reading today. These papers were heavily opinionated and contained plenty of editorialized content that would often be considered offensive, inflammatory, and in the case of Dick Rowland, dangerous. Randy Crabiel, you're a reporter for the Tulsa World. How long have you been there, and how did you come to write your book, Tulsa, 1921, Reporting a Massacre? Okay, well, in 1999, late in that year, I was assigned to cover the Tulsa Race Riot Commission, which was a, a body that was set up by the legislature, by the state of Oklahoma, to look into you know, what was then known as the Tulsa Race Riot and to make some recommendations. As part of that, I was told by my editor to try and start putting together an archive for our use, for the Tulsa World's use. Then, I don't know, about five years ago, it occurred to me that it would be a good idea for me to try and take all the material I had and try and put it into a narrative form sort of one thing led to another. The University of Oklahoma found out about it, got interested, and so it wound up being a book. I mean, I say this just to emphasize how compelling the subject can be, is that I think over the last 20 years, I've spent at least part of every day thinking or researching about this subject because it really kind of gets under your skin. Your book, Tulsa 1921, Reporting a Massacre, is based on your research of Tulsa's two largest newspapers at the time, the Tulsa Tribune and the Tulsa World, which is where you were currently. So what are some of the biggest differences between the papers and how they covered the events before, during, and after the Tulsa Race Massacre? Sure. Well, first of all, just a little bit about newspapers in general in those days. You had morning papers and afternoon papers. Morning papers tended to be uh, the newspapers of what we'd call white-collar uh, folks, the people who had time to read the paper in the morning. And uh, the afternoon papers tended to be uh, the working people's newspapers. Uh, in Tulsa's case, the world was the morning paper. It was basically a Republican paper, although it claimed to be a nonpartisan, and you have to keep in mind the parties were quite a bit different in those days than they are now. And they were also divided on other issues. The when it came to the race, neither one of them were terribly progressive, but the Republicans were more progressive than the Democrats were, for the most part. And so, anyway, the world was the Republican paper. The owner and publisher was kind of a Theodore Roosevelt Republican. The Tribune was the afternoon paper. It was the Democrat paper. It was it was more of a crusading newspaper, more aggressive. The world was more of kind of your, I don't know if you'd call it a chamber of commerce paper, but its big issue was uh, water. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, in other words, getting the city a reliable supply of fresh water. So the way that this 
played out was that I would say the world was more sympathetic to the plight of the survivors, the people who were left homeless and in many cases destitute by the massacre. The Tribune had been campaigning for cleaning out Greenwood. They always portrayed it as being kind of a den of iniquity. And so after the massacre, when there was an effort made to move this community further out of town, if you will, Tribune was behind that. The world was initially kind of, well, let's wait and see. Okay, so we get to the day that the incident between Dick Rowland and Sarah Page happens. Can you briefly explain what both the Tulsa Tribune and the Tulsa World reported happened between Dick Rowland and Sarah Page? So it's not in the afternoon paper on May 31st, the Tribune. It's not in the morning paper of the world on May 31st. But on the afternoon of May 31st, the Tribune reported that Dick Rowland had been arrested for attempted assault on this white girl. And so the story was, I would say, pretty racially charged. It used the word assault, which in those days was associated with rape or attempted rape. And they called him Diamond Dick Rowland, which I think kind of plays into some stereotypes and kind of sort of implied that he was this sort of listless, no-account guy hanging around. And at the same time, they portray Sarah Page as this poor little orphan girl who's trying to work her way through school. And turns out that, you know, neither of those may have been necessarily accurate. So that story kind of got some attention and probably triggered a call to the police commissioner later that day saying, hey, we're going to come and get him. And things kind of progressed from there. The world didn't actually report that this had happened, that Dick Rowland had been arrested until the morning of June 1st. So almost everything was over by the time it was reported in the world. Anything a newspaper reported at the time, including things that were not truthful, were biased, or were outright racist, could really help shape public opinion because most people got their information from newspapers, correct? Well, yes. There was no radio. There was no television, no cable television, no internet. So newspapers were really the mass medium. There was one other factor in this that often gets overlooked, and that's the telephone. Apparently, the telephone lines were on fire, figuratively. The telephone company reported they had a record number of calls that day, and they had to bring in all of their operators who were off duty. They had to work overtime to come in just to handle the calls. This was in the days when you still had the switchboards, you know, and every call had to be manually connected. Right. So Dick Rowland was taken into custody. Who was he taken into custody by? He was arrested by the police. He was arrested actually by a white officer and a black officer. And he was taken initially to the city jail, which was not a very secure place. And once the police commissioner received this phone call saying, you know, we're going to come and get him, the decision was made to move him to the county jail, 
which was about six blocks away and was actually pretty difficult to get to. I mean, you know, unless you had access to it because it was on the top floor of the courthouse and it was built so that you had to come up these enclosed stairs to get to it. So you could have just a few people at the top of the stairs barricaded in there and make it really difficult to there was an elevator but it appears that the sheriff ordered the elevator run to the top floor and disabled and as it turns out there is a notation in the county records a week or two after the massacre a charge for repairing the the elevator in the courthouse so it looks like maybe they actually did that Dick Rowland was moved because it was feared that the mob outside would try to take him and lynch him or exact their own form of justice on him, right? That's correct. And there was a a debate between the police chief, the police commissioner, and the county sheriff. The police wanted him taken out of town altogether. And the sheriff wouldn't do it because he said he was safer in the jail than he would be in a car out on an open road. That's why they kept him in the jail. I believe a law enforcement officer hears that a mob is going to come after Roland, and he makes a call to a Black leader in Greenwood. Isn't that correct? Well, there's different stories about that. Uh, We know that some of the Black leaders called the mayor and some other people. What was alleged or what was claimed was that some of the black leaders said they got calls from the sheriff asking for help, but he said he never called them. So it's unclear if, you know, if somebody was mistaken, if the sheriff was lying, or if somebody was trying to stir up trouble. I mean, there is a element of this that suggests that perhaps somebody was trying to keep things stirred up. So several selected Black leaders go down to the courthouse to see about Roland because they don't want to see him get lynched, which was happening to many Black people across the country. That's correct. Then what happens? Well, there were several different groups of Black men went to the courthouse. They were armed. And in each case, a Black deputy sheriff named Barney Cleaver, who was pretty well-respected by everybody in town, was able to convince them to leave. Now, they could not get the white crowd to leave. And so you had this situation where the armed black men are coming through the white part of town to the courthouse to protect Dick Rowland in the you know legitimate belief that something is going to happen to him But their presence is probably further angering the white crowd because at that time, black men with guns in the white part of town was something that just wasn't supposed to happen. And so anyway, they couldn't get the white crowd to leave. The white authorities never put on like a real show of force to get everybody to leave. They didn't surround the courthouse with police officers or call the governor and say, we need the National Guard to surround the courthouse. They never made a real strong show of force. And so this situation just continued to fester. 
there's some disagreement about what exactly triggered it, but it appears that it was probably a white man and a black man began wrestling over a gun and the gun went off. And this was after several groups of black men had gone to the courthouse to see about Dick Rowland because, as you mentioned, the allegations against him were inflammatory and evidence suggests false. And he didn't want to see another black man get lynched, correct? Yes, and said, keep in mind, there had been a white man taken out of the courthouse the year before. And so their confidence in the system was not all that high. Now, significantly, it was a different sheriff. There had been a new sheriff elected at the end of 1920. And so the sheriff who was protecting Dick Rowland was not the same sheriff who allowed the other man to be lynched. But nevertheless, I mean, if you were a black person in Tulsa or just about anywhere else in the United States in 1921, you probably didn't have a real high level of confidence in law enforcement or the legal system. In the next episode, we'll dive into the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921, specifically what happened during that less than 24-hour period in which a predominantly Black community was burned to the ground, potentially hundreds were killed, and thousands were left homeless. Be sure to follow us on social media, including our Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter pages. Just search for Black Wall Street 1921. And make sure you also visit our website, www.blackwallstreet-1921.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter and keep up with all of our episodes. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Mm -hmm.